Hello, and welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, bringing to you this week news from Mexico, Brazil, the United States, and a see you in hell that is the celebration of a dead right-winger from also the United States. Starting out in Mexico, CPAC Mexico, that is the Conservative Political Action Committee, they are holding their first meeting in Mexico. They have previously, over the last year or so, been branching out pretty extensively, starting out in Budapest, Hungary, which they did earlier this year. They have been holding CPACs throughout the world, actually. They have held one in Israel, and this is one that is being held in Mexico City. It's going to be held this weekend, so I will give a little post-mortem of it next week on the podcast. The interesting things about it are that it is featuring a lot of conservative politicians, not just from Mexico. In fact, most of them are not from Mexico. Most of them are from elsewhere in Latin America or from elsewhere in the extremely conservative Catholic world. This uh, CPAC has a sort of poster, like, you know, like a like a music concert. So there's like top build people. The top build people are Javier Millet, who is an Argentine far-right slash libertarian talking head slash attempted politician, and Lechualesa, who was the anti-communist former Polish prime minister and Nobel Peace Prize laureate. Also appearing are Marjorie Taylor Greene, the sitting member of Congress in the United States and far-right Trump conspiracy theorist propagandist person. Also Eric Zemmour, who ran for president in France as an even more extreme right candidate than Marianne Le Pen in the previous French presidential election. These are sort of like a who's who of either has-beens in the extreme right across the world, or people who are just like continuing rising influential stars on the extreme right in the world. And by the extreme right, we're specifically mostly talking about like the very Christian and virulently anti-communist right wing. That seems to be the sort of brand that CPAC is developing on an international scale. Whereas nationally, CPAC remains the breeding ground, the like big showcase for major conservative right-wing figures, like populist right-wing figures in the United States. Continuing in Brazil, political violence or calls for it are ongoing in the wake of Jair Bolsonaro's loss to Lula da Silva in the previous presidential election. Specifically, last week, somebody dressed as a military captain and claiming to be a priest, like specifically claiming to be a Protestant evangelical priest, made a big speech in Recife, which is a major city in the Brazilian Northeast, that went viral on social media. Because this guy was urging people to kill voters and electors for the PT, that is Lula's party, and PESOL, that is P-S-O-L, which is a socialist Marxist party that is to the left of Lula. Uh, because Brazil is not the United States, this leftist party actually does have actual real representation in Congress. You know, this isn't just like a protest vote party. It actually has representation and position in Congress. So this isn't somebody saying like, hey, go attack fringe people. He's saying like, go and attack people who vote for existing political parties, who vote for existing candidates, who voted for the president-elect of Brazil. This is information I'm sharing with you as a corrective to any narrative that you might have heard that like, oh yeah, well now that Bolsonaro has lost, we don't have to worry about him and his supporters anymore. And then they wash their hands of it. Uh, because unfortunately, that is just not going to happen. 
Instead, it is extremely likely that we will continue to see calls for the development of and actual political violence in Brazil by Bolsonaro supporters, not only throughout the remainder of the year until Lula's inauguration on January 1st, but until potentially Jair Bolsonaro runs again. Although that specifically is also being called into question because potential criminal cases being brought up against Bolsonaro for his sharing of false election claims potentially might mean that he could be barred from running for office in Brazil for eight years. However, that is all in question and all sorts of like, you know, amendments and appeals and stuff are in play. So we don't exactly know how that's going to shake out. Moving on to the United States, the Republicans have retaken the House of Representatives, but only just barely so far. If you have been paying attention to the major news narratives, to the major media narratives, the big narrative that is being offered in the United States is that the supposed red wave, that is the predicted massive upsurge of Republican support that was supposed to get them both the Senate and the House of Representatives, did not materialize. A lot of commentators are saying that this is Trump's fault. Some of them are blaming the GOP's loss of, like, potentially disproportionate numbers of voters because of the COVID pandemic, you know, saying that, well, because Republicans disproportionately refused to get vaccinated and disproportionately refused to follow social distancing regulations, they died in disproportionate numbers. And even specifically, elderly or middle-aged Republicans died in disproportionate numbers. And those are specifically the people that the GOP needs to turn out to win elections like midterm elections, which have historically low turnout. Other people say that it is related to a relatively historic youth turnout, which turned very hard for the Democrats this year. Other people are saying that it's because of the Supreme Court's violation of abortion rights in the United States. The fact is that there is a contest. There is a, there is a question about what the nature of this relative failure was. And again, remember, this is a relative failure. The Republicans have still taken Congress, Right. The January 6th committee is almost certainly going to end now because of this midterm election result. And a lot of people on the Trump side of the GOP are saying that this relatively lackluster performance, which again is a victory, was because Trump wasn't on the ballot. And their claim is that if Trump is on the ballot in 2024, then more people will turn out and it will mean a greater victory for Republicans in the 2024 election. The point is that exactly what happened here is, uh, you know, it's in contest. But the big narratives on the major news networks are that this shows a weakness in the GOP. And specifically that it shows a weakness from Trump. That is what a lot of the media is talking about. And we're not just talking about like sort of kind of leftish leaning or extremely centrist or even center right publications. We're even talking about some very conservative ones. The National Review, for example, which is kind of like the bulwark of traditionalist conservatism in the United States, is saying specifically this, that the GOP lost or did disproportionately poorly in the 2022 midterm elections because of Donald Trump. And that is precisely what is in contest now, the role of Donald Trump in the upcoming future of the GOP. This is uh, the biggest thing that's happening in the United States right now on the right wing, a massive conflict within the movement of the right. There are a lot of angles and a lot of fronts on this particular conflict. For example, Mike Pence, 
President Donald Trump's former vice president, has been openly speaking for the first time since January 6th, giving his first televised interview since January 6th, because he's publishing a memoir, you know, and he's trying to trying to sell those books. He's gotten the closest to denouncing this attempted coup, saying, quote, that Donald Trump put him and his family in danger with Donald Trump's actions on that day. That's probably about as close as Pence is ever going to get to saying like, hey, Donald Trump tried to incite a mob to murder me, uh, which is a pretty serious charge, right? That is the sort of thing that you can imagine him having said day of, but he didn't because Donald Trump was still in charge of the party. Now there are cracks in that armor, and it means that people like Pence and other people in the GOP, you know, we're seeing similar statements coming out from smaller operatives, you know, like deputy leaders and, you know, deputy chairmen and stuff like that in various state houses and also lots of people in the conservative media world, not just in the National Review, but also like big internet personalities. You know, people like Mike Cernovich, who has been a sort of right-wing tastemaker on the internet for several years, almost a decade now, has turned away from Donald Trump. What this means is that the GOP and the right-wing in general is gearing up for an internal struggle, a hegemonic struggle, as in a struggle over who will be the leading light, who will be the vanguard of their political movement. Is it going to be the extreme right as Trump has exemplified? You know, a GOP and a right wing that has space for extreme right wing white nationalism and, you know, male chauvinist sexist nationalism? Or is it going to be a sort of more pared down normal type conservatism exemplified by somebody, for example, like uh, DeSantis, the governor of Florida, who, you know, shares pretty much exactly the same policy perspectives and priorities that Donald Trump has, but isn't directly or at least as directly tied to fascists and, you know, at least so far has not openly attempted to stage a coup to maintain his hold on the presidency through violent means. The question essentially is, does the GOP believe that they need this extra legal behavior, that they need the participation of the extreme right in order to win elections? Or do they think that they would be served better by somebody who actually does play by the rules and who is not about to, you know, stage a coup or something like that. And if you are in the mainstream media or even sort of like lefty-leaning media echo chambers, probably it's going to seem crazy to you that this is even a question, right? Most people right right now, as I'm recording this, are saying that like, oh, it's crazy. You know, it'd be crazy for them to nominate Trump again. He couldn't possibly do it. I just want to direct you to the last six years of history in the United States, in which time and again, something has happened and Donald Trump has, you know, sort of gone off the deep end, apparently, and it seemed as if he could never possibly come back. He could never recover. They'll never be able to support him. He could never get away from this, but he has. My point is that this fight within the GOP over the legacy of Donald Trump and over his potential hold on the party is yet to be determined. We don't know who's going to win. And no matter who does win, the policies and platforms and politics that Trump has promoted throughout his career as the leader of the GOP are now the mainstream of the party. That's independent of whether or not Donald Trump remains. And his announcement that he is going to run on Tuesday of this week was him trying to say, like, I am vital to this, right? He's trying to say, like, you need me in order to remain in power 
in the United States. We just don't know if the Republicans are going to follow his lead, if they agree on that, if they think that they do actually need Trump or not. That is going to be the big story of the right wing in the United States for several months to come, at least possibly years, as we enter into the 2024 presidential election cycle in earnest. And remember that this contest over the role of Trump in the GOP is happening under the backdrop of the ongoing investigation of his activities on January 6th. He was issued a subpoena by the January 6th committee. He ignored that subpoena. And the January 6th committee is being like, well, we don't know what we're going to do now. You know, we're exploring our options. Meanwhile, Trump has sued the January 6th committee, saying that they have issued him this subpoena in error or that it's a political stunt or something like that. The fact that the GOP did win the House mean that that's probably a moot point now. But Trump is facing a lot of problems, and he announced his presidential run in an attempt to try to right the ship. You know, we just don't know. This, this is a big period of flux. So don't believe the hype. And regarding Donald Trump and his position in the United States, the stories of his death have been greatly exaggerated. I'm going to close out this episode like I do every week with See You in Hell, a segment celebrating the deaths of prominent right-wing figures in history. This week, we are sticking with the United States, and we are talking about Gerald Burton Winrod, what a last name, an anti-Semitic nationalist priest and would-be politician. Winrod was born in 1900 in Missouri, but moved to Kansas with his family as a kid. In 1925, he founded an organization called the Defenders of the Christian Faith, which was a right-wing Protestant Christian nationalist militant organization that was extremely serious about anti-Semitism. Winrod and the Defenders published the Anti-Semitic Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which is a anti-Semitic propaganda book. A book is probably an extremely generous thing to call this document. Uh, he thought that FDR was in league with Satan and Jewish people. This guy was a classic blood libel anti-Semite. He claimed that Jewish people killed Jesus and that they were using the power of his blood in order to reign over the world as communists and atheists. You know, like, like this, is, this is classic, classic 1930s anti-Semitism. And yeah, as a reminder, this is happening during the 1930s. So actual Nazis, by which I mean members of the German Nazi party, were on his side and were very interested in him. He and his magazine, The Defender, reprinted a lot of their materials in the United States. This got him the moniker, the Kitty Hawk Nazi, because Kitty Hawk is a, is a nickname that people from Kansas get. I don't know. He ran in the GOP primary for the Senate in Kansas in 1938. He got 21% of the vote, uh, which is pretty disturbing. Just like a, just a total out Nazi doing that. During World War II, after the United States entered the war, he was an isolationist, like most United States Nazis. He was eventually indicted by the federal government in 1942 for sedition and conspiracy regarding the United States' activity in World War II. He did go to trial, but the judge died while the trial was happening, and the feds just kind of said that they were going to not keep going, so that's why he didn't end up in jail. Instead, he died on November 11th, 1957, of pneumonia. Incidentally, one of his kids is also a fascist priest uh, with the Christian identity movement, although he is actually in jail for kidnapping his own children from a former romantic partner. Anyway, uh, Gerald Burton Renrod, we will see you in hell. All right, that was 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics. 
If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. Please leave a review on whatever it is you're listening to this on. If you really like the podcast, check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash 15 minutes of fascism. That's 15 minutes of fascism spelled out and all one word. I mean that sincerely. If you like the podcast, please tell somebody about it. That's how people learn about it. That's why I am doing this in order to spread the word about the dangers of the right wing and to help people deal with it and stop it. 15 minutes of fascism at gmail.com is where you can reach me if you want to send me tips or ask questions or issue corrections. I'm always willing to hear those. I am on Twitter at hiss of the right. That's H I S T of the right and fascism 15. All right. Thanks very much. And I'll talk to you next week. Thank you.